welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Park. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin in Berkeley. And today, Bob is off on assignment, uh, dealing with urgent matters of state, as always. Uh, But it's just going to be me. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the climate talks happening in Glasgow, which we have done a couple of arcs on this summer and fall leading up to it, talking about different things. But we also thought we would have uh, some perspectives from what's going on in Glasgow as the as the climate talks have begun the la- over the last couple of days. Uh, but before I uh, kind of delve into the episode and, and introduce our guest, I just want to say uh, thank you to everyone who listens to the Green and Red podcast. Uh, we appreciate how much you share and how much you comment and you give us reviews and things like that. But just want to encourage people to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, definitely hit that subscribe button. Uh, that's how we're growing. That's how we're having more influence. Um, and then also, if you really like us, I want to encourage you to uh, become a donor to the Green and Red podcast. And you can do that two ways. You can be a one-time donor and go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the support button. Or you can uh, go to Patreon, our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast, and become a patron and you can become a comrade for just $3 a month, which is pretty much the cost of a beer unless you live in New York or the Bay Area. Um, and then uh, we, uh, our, our podcast is fueled by uh, your donations. And so I um, want to really just ask everyone to support Green Pod- Podcast as much as you can and appreciate all the new patrons that we've had in the last month, which has been a couple, more than a few. Um, moving into the episode, um, we're going to be talking with Matt Leonard with the Oil and Gas Action Network, who is in Glasgow working with the Glasgow Actions team. Um, and you know, before I do an even more proper introduction of Matt, I just want to say, um, you know, the Glasgow Climate Summit started on Monday. Um, there have been lots of new pledges coming from the global north uh, and countries in the global south. India has vowed to reduce its carbon emissions to net zero by 2070. Over 100 world leaders have agreed to end deforestation by 2030. Um, And yet, even though we saw a dip during the pandemic, emissions from coal, gas, and oil have all gone back up over the last year, according to the Global Carbon Project. Uh, And then the other thing, and we're going to talk a little bit about this, is we're also seeing a huge police presence in Glasgow. Uh, there is a uh, quote-unquote steel ring of 10,000 police guarding the conference center. But we're also seeing lots of actions, marches, and direct action. Uh, so that's why I'm excited to have um, this interview today with my longtime friend and comrade and co-collaborator and co-conspirator, co-conspirator Matt Leonard. Uh, Matt is a longtime climate activist. He's worked in climate movements for you know a decade or two. I'll let him if he wants to say how long he's been with us. I've been doing climate stuff. Welcome to say that. Uh, but welcome to Green and Red, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. Long time listener and first time caller, and a donor. You're part of our, our mm-hmm. M19 brigade. Yeah. Um, uh, although you don't have to pay to get on the show, folks. You can still get on the show. <laughs> if that's interesting to say. 
so Matt, you're in, you're in the streets of Glasgow. You've been there for a couple of weeks now. Um, maybe kind of just start off with your reaction to the opening of COP26, what you're seeing, that sort of thing. Yeah, so um, yeah, I've been on the ground a couple of weeks now, getting a, a real sense of the city and sort of the different social movement ecosystem that's happening here. Um, and it was nice sort of being on the ground a little early to get a sense of that before the, the negotiations of COP26 started. Um, but what's sort of interesting, I guess, is that um, you know past summits has been really led by negotiators who are often ministers or delegates for several weeks. And we saw in places like Copenhagen where world leaders came in at the tail end to sort of quote unquote, save the day. Whereas this opened the other way where um, world leaders over a hundred came in for the first um, two or three days of the summit um, to sort of kick things off and then now have just gone home. Um, so now like the negotiations are really getting underway uh, more or less today. Um, and the first two days was sort of the glitz and glamor of Joe Biden and Boris Johnson and, and lots of other folks in town. Um, but it also meant that things kicked off with a really serious police state. Um, just an unbelievable police presence because of all those heads of state being in town. Um, so it's definitely set the tone of things a, 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 in a sort of a big splash. And so, you know, sort of with that, with that in mind that the world leaders came in at the front where in previous cops, they come in at the end. Um, do you, what, what do you attribute to that? Do you think that, you know, we have a new urgency around the climate crisis. Uh, we have, you know, in the US, we have hurricanes and wildfires, that sort of thing. We also have a very vocal climate movement. Um, what do you attribute to the urgency um, of uh, climate leaders, world, excuse me, world leaders, I don't know if they're climate leaders, uh, kind of showing up and making a lot of these pledges? Yeah, I think it's probably a couple things. I mean, you know, in the Paris talks five years, six years ago now, um, you know, those were significant in some ways and that there were some pretty big global agreement on this aspirational goal of limiting temperature rise globally to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And this COP is really sort of the, the major check-in point where it's like, all right, our country's actually on track to do this. And big surprise, they're not. Um, so I think that we're, we're seeing world leaders responding to that sort of, that commitment, that, that aspirational commitment that's, that's being failed to be met. So world leaders are coming in to sort of, you know, hopefully put a little more pressure and ambition or sort of guideposts up for negotiators to follow. But I think a lot of it is, it's the big thing is um, climate disasters are not at this point, something that people are talking about of risks of things happening in 2050 or in 2100. We're seeing huge, just catastrophic disasters happening all around the world. And most countries, big and small, are feeling that, particularly these past few years. And so I think that's putting a, a real pressure on world leaders to sort of, uh, you can't deny that or kick the can down the road anymore. But we're also seeing huge social movements, um, whether that's the climate strikes or Extinction Rebellion or you know, fossil fuel resistance, often led by indigenous communities in the States or Canada. Um, those social movements are just putting a huge shift on the paradigm of how people are thinking about climate change, how politicians or banks or corporations or fossil fuel companies are, are, are res responding. And I think that's a big part of the shift is um, really powerful social movements that are forcing the issue to the table and making it be unignorable. You know, and, um, you know, speaking of that, we, we've done a couple of episodes in the months leading up to the COP around, you know, a police response to protesters of Mine 3. Uh, we did an episode on Jessica Resnicek, who is going to prison for being a, a saboteur of the, the code access pipeline. 
Um, and then we've also, we did an episode with Jackie Fielder talking about stop the money pipeline and campaign finance um, campaigns. And so, you know, how is, and, and so in, in many ways, it, it feels like, you know, there's this vibrant climate movement happening. And it seems like that has been brought to Glasgow. And so how would you say that the state and ruling class are responding to the movement coming to Glasgow to like challenge the world leaders, challenge negotiations, et cetera? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Like all those movements you mentioned are in one way or another present here, um, whether it's a few representatives or those issues being amplified by allies in solidarity, um, you know, and all those issues and so much more. I mean, you know, small communities from uh, Micronesia or you know, East Timor have their voices here, along with folks from Africa and everywhere else. Um, and I think this is an opportunity where people, movements are seeing that connectivity, that many of the same struggles they're fighting that, you know, let's say line three in the States um, are really connected to the folks who are fighting expanded or proposed expansions of, of offshore drilling in, in Scotland or in Africa or South America. So there's a really amazing movement connectivity there, seeing that it's the same systems, it's often the same politicians, it's definitely the same corporations um, that we're often fighting, you know, those same battles in different parts of the world. Um, but I think again, like all those places are just bringing increased heat where there's a much more unified call that systems are really the problem. These big institutions are the problem. And I think, you know, I, I haven't been to a COP in over 10 years, but 10 years ago, there was still a lot of discourse around individual behavior change as the solution and your carbon footprint and, uh, you know, getting rid of plastic straws and recycling more. And I'm seeing a lot, lot less of that discourse here and a lot more about we need to massively change these systems and institutions. That personal behavior isn't enough. And I think that social movement response is that collective action is really what's needed to do it. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, that's coming from old time seasoned activists. It's coming from high schoolers and climate strikers who have this really sophisticated political analysis that I certainly didn't have in high school. I don't, I don't know anyone that did at that age, but that's really changed, I think, um, in the sort of a, a younger generation. And, and with, the, you know, with the people in the streets and, you know, this rising people power, in, in Glasgow in particular, as we see, you know, world leaders make these promises, you know, the, the uh, Indian, it was an amazing headline actually to see in the Guardian about the, the Indian promised to, uh, to uh, uh, cut, um, you know, get its carbon emissions down to net zero by 2070, particularly since that's a, you know, fairly right-wing Indian government there right now. And so how are people in the streets uh, in Glasgow, in the in the movement spaces and the movement ecosystem, really responded to these promises. So they see it as just false promises and just more of the same, just with good PR. Or is there any folks who actually have any kind of hope around this? I think there is a sense of hope, but I think again that hope is much more placed in social movements than in politicians. Um, you know, people like Greta Thunberg have have sort of characterized the blah 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 her sort of statement about politicians just talking and talking and talking but not taking action. I think that sentiment feels pretty spot on that, um, you know, again, if I think in years past, a lot of cops, you know, the aspirational goals that people were demanding were to make these commitments, you know, whether it's to 1.5 degrees or to a certain parts per million or to something, but to make these commitments that were pretty far down the road. And I think more so now people are really fed up and disillusioned with these promises that are decades in the future. And they're saying, what are you doing today? What are you committing to do tomorrow? And I think the calls for things like keeping fossil fuels in the ground today, stopping all new permitting, um, a phase out, a just, just transition off fossil fuels are much more prevalent. Um, 
I think people are generally, you know, holding these these bigger institutions and systems accountable, but with a lot less tolerance for sort of their their feel good rhetoric or their promises that that continually ring hollow time and time again. Um, you know, I don't want to give any of these politicians a ton of credit, but I think even some of the politicians and delegates are you're seeing that sort of that frustration from them, where they're like pointing to other, you know, each other as sort of peers as other heads of state or world leaders saying like, we're past the time for talk, we need action. The Queen of England, you know, was even out there saying we're past the time for talk and we need time for action. And it's like, all right, that sentiment is right. It's changing. I just hope that even those words of calling for action um, still can often ring hollow from, from heads of state. But, but I think, you know, again, like the social movements are just so powerful and that is really where people's hope lies that we're gonna build a new world in the shell of the old. And more than anything, we need sort of the, these old systems and these politicians that get out of the way and let bottom-up people really shape that. You know, um, speaking about institutions, um, you know, we know that there's a lot of corporate influence in all aspects of our life. A big theme that I that we have been seeing this year has been around greenwashing. I believe South Carolina Pipeline actually ran a series of actions on, on stopping greenwashing. And then I saw uh, I saw where the Indigenous Environmental Network and Greta Thunberg and maybe folks from Greenpeace actually did a disruption of Mark Carney, who's the um, you know, UK rep uh, there in, in uh, Glasgow. They disrupted an event with him around greenwashing. And, and um, I'm kind of curious to know, you know what is, how, how present are the corporate lobbyists and the bankers and et cetera? I, I know there were protests at J.P. Morgan Chase in the last couple of days where 200 folks showed up at the Chase offices in, in Glasgow and you know that people were protesting outside of a banker's cop dinner. Just what, 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 is, what have you seen in, in, that, in that regard? That's a, that's a two-part question. One is how prevalent are corporations? And then two, you know, how is the, the you know, tell us about the disruption of the corporate events. Yeah, I mean, you know, the corporate influence in these spaces is undeniable. Um, it's sort of funny because there's there's this a, a big statement by a bunch of the fossil fuel companies complaining that they're left out of, of COP this year and that they they should have an active role in helping shape that. And they've been sidelined for decades, which is, you know, sadly hilarious because they've overwhelmingly dominated sort of both these sort of meetings and negotiations, but also there's insane amounts of money lobbying governments, writing laws and blueprints for certain governments, um, and certainly, of course, with climate denialism and, and that for decades. But it's it's interesting. I, I'm actually not accredited this time, so I'm not on the inside of any of the, the meetings and negotiations. So I don't have the great perspective of what it feels like inside the meeting rooms. But um, you know, it's undeniable. You just, you see that corporate influence everywhere. Whether it's huge billboard ads all over town by every you know, every bank or multinational corporation you can imagine who touting their, their green credentials, you know, whether it's Nike or Shell, like they're all just plastered all over town. Um, so that's huge. I mean, it's undeniable. And I, but I, I do think there's a market difference where there is a really growing call um, from social movements, but also increasingly from policymakers about the need to phase out fossil fuels that, you know, th I think that th those industries are on their heels. So I think that we're seeing that manifest in some of the policies where they're really desperately pushing anything they can as a lifeline. So things like offsets, offset trading programs, um, net zero, uh, you know, anything they can to sort of continue polluting and, and their, their business model of drilling, but they're really on the ropes. Um, we're seeing like that, that call to end the fossil fuel era really gaining traction. 
And then on the finance side, certainly, I mean, there's, uh, you know, I think that groups like Rainforest Action Network have been doing campaigning on banks for decades, two decades at least. But now we're seeing dozens and dozens of groups taking that approach, realizing that, you know, economics and capitalism are a huge part of the equation um, and starting to build more of that sense that like, you know, governments are not the only actor that's driving the climate crisis. It is a lot of it's, it's our economy and it's sort of the profit motive. So there's been a ton of great actions um, on banks from, you know, we had, I was part of an action last night with, with a bunch of groups targeting um, the global finance, um, get the acronym wrong, GFANS, the Global Financial Alliance for Net Zero. But it's basically all the, the major banks and asset managers, investment firms who got a ton of press today for saying that they're going to commit, I'm going to get the number wrong, what is it? like $430 trillion to the energy transition. Um, but even like the financial- Speaking of greenwashing. <laughs> yeah, even the, like the Financial Times is laughing at him saying, this is ridiculous. Like this means nothing. It's just a headline of words on paper. There's nothing to back it up. Um, so it's interesting that even like sort of their quote unquote peers are sort of realizing that this is greenwashing. Um, it's not just- you know, us activists or lefties like crying out greenwashing, like they're being laughed out of their own rooms. Yeah, I remember 15 years ago when we started working on climate together that it was a it was a pretty common thing that, you know, the, the, I'm gonna put this nicely, but the people who I would say were of a more liberal persuasion that there were like technocratic and, you know, within the system sort of solutions to the climate issue were like, look, they're you're making good headway. These corporations are doing the right thing. And now, you know, now even within their own sector, they're recognized to be just like greenwashing the problem because they've been doing it for, you know, decades and it, things just continue to get worse and lots of money continues to get piled into fossil fuels. Um, I won't name names, but one of the uh, most heartwarming tweets I saw about our action last night out in front of this, this kind of the banker's um, happy hour, cocktail hour, was someone who was on the inside um, and somehow had seen a photo of our action. And he's like, something like, this is a bunch of greenwashing here. I really wish those folks on the outside were inside with me tonight. I'm like, oh, I wish we were too. But yeah, lots more of that, right? Yeah. Um, I uh, uh, just because we have a couple of more uh, interviews we'll be doing from Glasgow, but just to kind of like wrap, just a little bit of a, of a wrap, um, wrap question is, is going to be around Biden himself. I know that the Glasgow Action Team and maybe other groups have been trying to sort of chase Biden around and get some messaging out in front of him. Um, I want to point out to our audience who maybe haven't been paying as close attention is that, you know, Biden actually apologized globally for Trump's withdrawal of the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accords. Um, and he's been making a lot of these promises. I actually believe that the U.S. just came out and committed to pull out all financing for fossil fuels abroad. Um, and then but, you know, in the meantime, Biden continues to do things like open up the Gulf of Mexico to more oil drilling and, you know, more, more drilling and mining on public lands and things like that. Um, and then, and then the, the pivot for them is to continue to blame like Joe Manchin, who's like, you know, a piece of shit. So that's great. Biggest recipient of oil and gas and coal, at least in the Democratic Party, if not all of Congress. But I'm wondering what the message would be from people in the streets of Glasgow to members of Congress who like oppose any sort of progress on climate um, or, you know, or, or to the administration, which seems to still play this kind of double speak. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think, you know, some of the narrative that the Biden administration is pushing in 
in Glasgow. And I think some of how the press is framing it is like the U.S. is going to come in and help save the day, you know, as a as a major economy, as this global influencer, global dominator. Um, and I think that's very much how Biden's framing it. But particularly with, you know, his what's happening domestically around the Build Back Better, his sort of infrastructure plan, um, really kind of not having the success that he'd hoped for and being um, rather gutted on climate issues. Um, I think some of that momentum was that wind was taken out of his sails. Largely, largely by Manchin. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of within the, his own party. But I think even as he gets here and is kind of trying to be a bit of a hero character, we're seeing um, you know, literally every day, sometimes multiple times a day, great actions from, um, from folks from the U.S. that are really challenging around that hypocrisy, around claiming to have these great climate credentials and leadership when, in fact, he is still permitting fossil fuels left and right. Um, so amazing actions led by groups like Indigenous Environmental Network or Indigenous Climate Action up in Canada, folks who've been fighting the Line 3 pipeline, Line 5 pipeline, offshore drilling, um, really making sure that, you know, the reality of what Biden has is, is actually been doing on climate in the U.S. isn't being overlooked by media. Um, and I think they've had like pretty solid media coverage um, of more outlets looking more critically at Biden and not just sort of taking him for his, you know, nice sounding speeches, but looking more critically at his actual um, actions and policies. Uh, just as a final question, is there any action that's been your favorite action since you've been there so far? I mean, it's honestly, I, I don't know how many listeners have been to a, an event like this, but it's it's just massive. You know, there's 25,000 official accredited delegates. There's side events at every every neighborhood park around town, at coffee shops, at pubs, at community centers or in parks um, that are organized by every range from, you know, scrappy grassroots activists to, you know, big NGOs to the Boy Scouts to you name it. Um, so it's really hard to keep track of everything that's happening. It's just overwhelming. And every day there's so many events. Um, but I think in particular, you know, Extinction Rebellion, um, you know, in the UK, it's where it started. It's just a really massive force, um, despite whatever sort of controversies they've developed. It's a really incredible, robust social movement um, that has totally changed the discourse on climate over here. Um, so just seeing all the system, all the different actions they've organized, the systems they've set up of support networks from, you know, campsites for people who are coming in from around the, you know, the continent or the globe um, to health and wellness, to the legal support structures, to direct action planning. Um, you know, it's, it's really impressive. And in particular, the next couple of days are really uh, meant to be the sort of the biggest mobilizations where estimates of anywhere from 50 to 100,000 people are going to be mobilizing for climate strikes, um, for marches, for mass direct action. So I think the next couple of days will be um, where we'll see a lot more of that. And I think we'll see more of the story change where it's not being driven by sort of politicians and policymakers, but much more the coverage driven by the social movements that are in the streets. Is there anywhere that listeners should be following to kind of keep up with the action on the streets in Glasgow? Well, I'll make a shameless plug. Um, you can follow Oil and Gas Action Network on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. Um, a lot of that content comes from myself or Scott, but um, there's others out here with I it. I may or may not, for full disclosure, I may or may not be a board member of the Oil and Gas Action <laughs> Network and volunteer. But we're, um, yeah, we're trying to, 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 to share a lot of stuff that we're involved with, but also amplifying um, so many other groups and, and actions that are happening out here. Um, but there is uh, a, sort of an umbrella coalition called the COP26 Coalition that's um, organizing a ton of events from the marches and actions to people's assemblies. And then um, 
as I mentioned, a, a lot of extinction rebellion groups. So XR Scotland um, has a really amazing um, set of resources on their website, as well as like just daily events calendars and report backs of all the actions that are happening. Um, but it is, it's so big, there really is no one place to sort of capture everything that's happening. It's, it's just, it's massive. The, the hat, folks, the hashtag COP26 is a, a pretty good thing to keep an eye on, for example. And that's something that we, in the different channels I work on, we've been promoting. So, Matt, it's been good talking to you. Um, yeah. Stay, stay safe out there. And uh, folks will be having a, a lot more from the streets of Glasgow. And we'll talk to you all soon. Thanks so much for having me on. Folks, here's another take from Glasgow that's going on. Uh, you know, you've just listened to uh, one uh, perspective from the streets of Glasgow. You heard from Matt Leonard at Oil and Gas Action Network. Uh, and now um, I'm talking with uh, Emma Ray Lyerly with the Rainforest Action Network, who is based in normally in North America, but is in Glasgow right now. Uh, welcome to Green and Red, uh, Emma Ray. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot going on in Glasgow. Uh, as of this recording, there was actually just a big mass march in the streets of Glasgow. The headlines, including in the Washington Post and the New York Times, are saying there are 100,000 people uh, marching in Glasgow around issues around the, cli around the climate crisis. I'm wondering if you could just actually tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, totally. I mean... You know, it was a super exhilarating day. It certainly felt like there was 100,000 people in the streets, um, which was really great to see. I think, you know, when we talk about Glasgow, the first sort of thing that is important to mention is all the people that aren't here right now. Um, and, you know, the, just the extreme inequities that this COP is being held under um, in terms of, you know, vaccine inequities and just the lack of representation, largely from the global south, um, you know, who are not ironically, but the, um, you know, experiencing the first and worst impacts of climate change, all climate change already, right? And they're not being represented um, in Glasgow. So, you know, they were very much felt um, missing in the streets. But with that said, there was a really great presence um, and it was cold and it was wet and rainy, but uh, the march was super positive and, and really, um, yeah, really inspiring and exhilarating to be a part of. Yeah, I saw that the, the march was actually led by frontline and indigenous leaders from around the world, from the Amazon, from Ecuador, Brazil, places like that. And I saw that on social media, but then I also saw a lot of critique and it could just be left Twitter making a, a stink about things. But, you know, it seems like those those leaders were invisibilized a little bit in the in the mainstream reporting. And I'm, mm. I'm, one, and I'm wondering, um, at least in my experience in working particularly in like international global climate uh, spaces that the, that the politics and messages are very influenced and drawn from those voices from, you know, frontline communities, from the global south, um, from, you know, communities and forests, global, for, uh, tropical forests, which are being impacted. I'm, I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit to the importance of those, of those messages that are, are happening there. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, both the, the climate strike for, uh, 
Friday march that happened and the march yesterday on, on Saturday, you know, were led by indigenous delegations, um, which was great to see. And, um, you know, there's certainly, uh, you know, I think a strong indigenous presence all, all throughout COP, both inside the, the venue, you know, the, the formal venue and, and outside as well. Um, and I think, you know, those messages are being heard loud and clear. I think that they're very much being taken up by, um, you know, the people's movement. And I think, unfortunately, they're also being somewhat co-opted at this COP by, um, you know, the leaders and the corporates in the in the room as well. So, you know, they're they're getting talked about on the stage, um, you know, I think to varying levels of, of success or impact. Um, but yeah, certainly, you know, the fact that uh, indigenous people are in the room and and leading is is critically important, um, and we need to see more of it for sure. Yeah, it's it's been actually really nice to see uh, leaders like Tom Goldtooth uh, very very prominent and and very centered in a lot of the at least the the movement media that I see. Um, shifting a little bit to uh, issues around tropical forests at the at the maybe before or right at the beginning of the COP, uh, this COP, COP26, you know, it was, it's been reported that 100 world leaders have agreed to end deforestation by 2030. And I'm wondering, um, I mean, there's many questions that can come from that, but um, I'm assuming that at least a part of that is gonna be around, you know, policy in those countries and then also resources. And I, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about, you know, communities, you know, getting those resources, fighting deforestation, is there an expectation that actually the, the frontline communities in, in places like Brazil, fighting off agribusiness and, and logging, et cetera, are going to um, be actually getting resources to actually do that? And then especially with the view that we have really reactionary governments in Brazil and Indonesia, which are two of the sort of like front lines of, of deep global deforestation, tropical deforestation. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's one of the critique of that pledge is that, you know, those details around who's getting the money and how are not, um, you know, they're not public and maybe not even hashed out yet. Um, so to answer, you know, your question sort of simply, it's just we don't know. We don't know who's going to get that money, how or when, um, at, you know, but most certainly uh to be any sort of success, it needs to go directly to the hands of indigenous communities, um, and, you know, who are best determined, who are best situated to determine how that money should be spent. Um, you know, the, the majority of pledges, right, or the vast majority of pledges should go toward indigenous communities um, to determine how they spend their money um, because they're the ones protecting the majority of the world's biodiversity. Um, but, you know, those details, you know, for that pledge, aren't there, um, which is, you know, partly why that pledge is um, being so heavily critiqued. You know, not only does it sort of kick the can further down the road, so many companies, so many countries made a, you know, no deforestation pledge for 2020, that came and went. Now there's, now there's this one for 2030, um, you know, so it'll, you know, who knows if we'll meet it or not. Um, you know, it's already made the news that Indonesia has already sort of critiqued it. Um, so, you know, whether or not it's just sort of more empty promises, more empty words is, you know, remains to be seen. Were, were Brazil, and, and I have to profess that I did not look and see which countries had actually signed on to that pledge, but did Brazil or Indonesia actually sign on to it? They did. Yeah, they were part of the 100 that did sign. And, 
and I'm, I'm kind of curious if you could speak a little bit more like campaigns like a Rainforest Action Network and groups that support communities on the ground and which does a campaign supporting communities on the ground in Indonesia and then, you know, organizations which are doing, you know, support work for communities on the ground in Amazon, similar for, you know, in Congo. Um, you know, can you actually speak a little bit to why these campaigns are so important? And, and also in North America, there's a, there's a sort of, um, there's a, a, a new sort of campaign uh, I don't know what to call it, like a, a sort of like campaign around land back, uh, which mm. also is uplifting, um, you know, land defenders, indigenous indigenous uh, communities, which are fighting pipelines and deforestation and everything out, you know, across the board. I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to why campaigns like that are so important, whether it's done by allies or whether it's, you know, being done by the communities themselves. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, Speaking specifically to forests, right, it's these campaigns are so critical because there is no climate stable, stable future without forests. Um, you know, forests, forest ecosystems are just critical to all life on Earth. Um, they manage our water supplies, they manage, you know, our weather patterns, they help cool the planet, they provide, um, you know, the land and shelter and home for millions of species, including millions of people. Um, yeah, there's just, you know, there's, there's no future without forests. Um, and so we have to protect them and we have to keep them standing at all costs. Um, and, you know, sort of what I said earlier, but the people that are really on the front lines of that, the people that have been protecting their, the forests and their land for time immemorial are indigenous communities and local communities who, um, you know, deeply know that land, live in um, a reciprocal relationship with that land and defend it against, you know, what is largely corporate expansion onto that land because the driving force of deforestation in the world is um, corporations coming and trying to turn forests into various commodities that we use or we eat, you know, whether that's beef, um, so cattle grazing for beef or soy production for, to feed that beef. Um, or palm oil, which is largely in Indonesia, um, or things like pulp and paper that produces, you know, sort of our Amazon packaging or all of our all of the paper in the world. Um, and the communities on the front lines are the ones that are fighting back against that expansion and, you know, defending those forests, not only for their own communities and their future generations, but for all of us really as well. Um, so yeah, it's incredibly critical. And, you know, the truth of the matter is that, you know, this COP is more pledges and sort of more acronym word soup and, you know, more great, um, you know, promises for future, but we still know that, you know, the world's banks are just fueling that fire with a ton of money. Um, brands are still, you know, buying up as, you know, cheaply as they possibly can, the commodities that are coming out of those forests um, and communities are still, you know, on those front lines, literally putting their bodies on the line to prevent that from happening. Um, and so the way that we protect forests, the way that we protect, you know, biodiversity, the way we protect a climate stable future is by supporting, upholding indigenous land rights and indigenous sovereignty um, and making sure that those communities that have lived on that land since time immemorial have the say of what happens to that land and what happens to that community. Um, yeah, otherwise, you know, we will not get to where we need to be. There's there's no 1.5 degree, there's no climate stable future without without doing that. 
Yeah, I saw the there was a, a UN report that warned that at least uh, 10 designated World Heritage Sites, 10 forests designated as World Heritage Sites uh, have become net emitters, emitters, like it's going out of greenhouse gases uh, where they're no longer absorbing more carbon they, than they emit. And sort of the critical piece here is that, you know, if we listen to communities who live there, if we listen to forest and land defenders, then, you know, that will be way less of an issue. And, and I think that's like an important message, kind of like going back to my earlier question about the politics of, you know, climate impacted forest communities, you know, communities living next to fossil fuels. It's all, it's all sort of like, that's the politic that drives the climate movement at this point, at this stage. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. You know, and it, it took us a while to get here, but I, I, I hope we're here <laughs> and I hope that that only continues into the future. It, it seems like the, the, the urgency, the, the urgency is, you know, finally caught on uh, just in the last, in the last couple of years, one, because of the, the, the amount of climate disasters that we have, whether it's wildfires or hurricanes in North America, for example, or, you know, floods and typhoons, et cetera. Um, and one of the ways it seems like that the urgency has caught on is that we have now seen world governments and corporations, you know, all of a sudden like taking action uh, is uh, become a, a become a, a much, it, it's at least a, a PR, a public relations, you know, top line for, for these companies. That and around racial justice, uh, it's always interesting to go to Whole Foods and see like how they like support Black Lives Matter. But I think I think similarly, we see corporations basically encouraging people to take individual actions. But mm -hmm. you and I, because most of our audience knows where I work, uh, we work in an organization focused on corporate campaigns. Uh, you know, and we have campaigns. We work on campaigns on banks and insurance and cons consumer brands related to to deforestation. So as you know, someone who works at an organization that, that does corporate campaigns, that does interventions, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to, there's this sort of you know, individual responsibility piece that it seems like a lot of corporations promote. It's like buy our product, buy a longer lasting life, et cetera, versus these sort of you know, institutional, even sectoral you know, interventions that a, a group like Rainforest Action Network does. Yeah, I mean, I think that's been a long time strategy of, of uh, you know, the corporate world, right, is to try to just pass the buck in whatever way they can. Um, and I think that that's, you know, also, you know, on the inside of COP right now, also being sort of negotiated really heavily, you know, not only in the corporations, but also in the governmental space in terms of like, who's going to pay for this problem. Um, and, you know, the fact of the matter is, right, that and maybe we've all seen those memes that there's like, you know, a hundred companies um, that are responsible for this crisis. You know, we know who they are. We know where their addresses are, um, but they've done a really good job of convincing us that it's individual consumer choice, um, you know, and that's uh, both sort of a, a really convincing sleight of hand. And it's also, you know, very classist and very racist at the same time. Um, and the, you know, just the truth is right. That it is, um, if we want to talk about consumer action, who are the biggest consumers in the room, right? Who are the biggest consumers on earth? It's it's uh, these massive brands, it's these massive companies that have literal billions of dollars at, the dis at their disposal, supply chains that crisscross all around the world. You know, they, they are buying up the bulk of the goods in the world um, and selling it back to us. 
Um, and, you know, it's really that kind of um, scale of response and, and systems change that is needed right now. Um, and I think that, you know, we're seeing all around the world that kind of movement mobilization, mass mobilization and people power that is um, calling for that. You know, I think that, um, not to be cliche, but I think the youth really get that. Um, and I think that, you know, this generation of, of youth that are coming up right now um, are getting radicalized and educated and just, you know, are seeing it much more clearly. Um, and maybe that's because of the power of social media and, and sort of the movement spaces that have been developed in the last, you know, few decades, but they, yeah, that's just built into the politic now. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's so inspiring to see, um, you know, at the, at the strike for the climate march on Friday, it was just, it was incredible to see these young kids come out and um, just have the most radical analysis, <laughs> you know, the like 12 year olds just like totally um, hitting all the point, you know, just like just having the clearest, the clearest analysis of the present day and, and what needs to happen and what needs to change. Um, and yeah, it is definitely, you know, not, um, you know, it, we will not fix this problem, problem through individual recycling. Um, it is the, the richest people on earth who also are the biggest polluters on earth who are responsible to both um, fix the problem and also pay for it. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like, it seems very much that the, and not only are we living in this sort of era of climate crisis and climate disaster, but we're also living in this era of a, a sort of new gilded age, probably for the last couple of decades. And it seems like youth, 12 year olds and second graders and you know have already are caught on to that and and that I, I don't even think the one percent the those uber wealthy the heads of these corporations the people who are making lots of money of it have actually are I feel like they're so insulated they haven't even really picked up on that and it's mm. um eventually gonna come back and overwhelm them you know we'll come out with the guillotines or what have you um we like to talk about guillotines on green and red podcast um uh, but the, the, some of the current PR strategy, the, the word that's thrown around a lot is greenwashing versus real action. And, and I feel like that actually describes a little bit of what we're talking about. And I'm wondering, just to kind of bring it back to Glasgow, what is the level of greenwashing that you're seeing while you're there in Glasgow? Mm, what role, yeah. what role are corporations playing in talks and events and things like that? And then how much of it is this like sort of PR greenwash push? Oh man, I mean, I hate to say it, but um, you know, in inside the space, like it, it feels like all of it. You know, to be to be totally honest, it feels like a greenwashing trade show. Um, you know, it is um, just a sort of scramble of, um, you know, yeah, new initiatives. You know, new frameworks, new this, new that. Um, it's a lot of co-optation of of you know language that's come up from. Um, you know, from progressive movements and from, you know, more people powered spaces. Um, and, you know, yeah, it's a just, it's a, it's a lot of empty promises. Um, I think that people understand the expectations, you know, I think corporations and governments understand the expectations um, placed on them by the world right now. And I think that they're scrambling to try to um, pretend as if they're doing something while also, you know, frantically, um, 
figuring out a way to to maintain status quo. Um, so yes, greenwashing is greenwashing is everywhere, unfortunately. And and the and the sort of latest version, the latest buzzword associated with greenwashing, at least in nonprofit circles and corporate sustainability circles, is net zero. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could just say a couple words about that. And for our audience yeah. out there, we'll be talking about net zero a lot more in the future. So. Yeah, definitely. Net zero, you know, and sort of the full phrase being net zero by 2050, um, you know, is sort of the claim from governments and the private sector, um, you know, about that's when we're going to sort of reach, um, you know, net zero carbon emissions by, um, you know, and the fact of the matter is 2050 is, is, you know, way too little and way too late. Um, If that's, you know, when we just, when we uh, leave our carbon emission reductions to, um, you know, the world is going to face catastrophic, irreversible impacts. Um, and so, yeah, it is, you know, a very slick phrase and just sort of, you know, another, um, you know, or maybe the latest uh, greenwashing phrase of the moment. Yeah, I, I, I feel, it seems like, it seems like, uh, it's the it's the buzzword we'll be hearing for a while. It, it's it's also you know when we think about these you know, narratives versus counter narratives, it, it also just seems as someone who enjoys being the counter narrative to the to the corporate brand. It's 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 also it is a challenge to be able to go in and be able to sort of undermine that and, and undermine them in that conversation. So I, and I look forward to that, which is why. Hopefully we'll be talking a lot more. I hope we're actually hoping to do an episode in, a, in probably after COP with folks to talk about net zero, just in general. We're trying to get people with the Climate Justice Alliance to come talk to us about it. Um, awesome. My last question, uh, the sort of wrap up question is, do you have any final words or final thoughts of what we should be watching for in the second week of the COP? Because it's just the first week has just ended and it's gonna go on for another five days, I believe. Yeah, um, I mean, today, you know, the the People's Summit um, for Climate Justice just started here in Glasgow. Um, I think there's a lot of sessions that are also online. Um, so if folks aren't in Glasgow, I, I would definitely encourage people to tune into that. Um, you know, I think that those are the spaces that um, give us the tools and um, the, you know, the skill building and the analysis that we need to, to think about um, and build the future together. Um, and yeah, I'd say, you know, sure, give RAN a follow, um, follow, you know, follow along with us. There's also just, yeah, so many great, um, I mean, everyone is represented here. Um, you know, there's so many great organizations to follow. And, um, you know, I think even just like hashtag COP26 is a great hashtag to follow just, you know, for the, the events of the day. Emma Ray, it's been, it's been great talking to you. Uh, Emma Ray Lyerly with Rainforest Action Network from the streets of Glasgow. Uh, folks, you know, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We've been posting a lot about COP26, and you're going to see uh, even more of these clips from us coming soon. And we'll talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Scott.
listening to the silky smooth sounds of the green and red podcast. And as always, we thank you for listening to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And then as always, uh, we would like to ask you to subscribe uh, to us on whatever format you listen to, whether it be on podcast or on our YouTube channel. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are on Linktree slash green and red podcast. And we now also have postcards. And if you have a coffee house or a library or a bookstore or someplace like that in your area, that might be uh, a great spot to put some of these. Just ask us and we will send them to you free of charge to spread the word about the green and red podcast. And you can email us at greenredpodcast at gmail to get uh, a, a packet of your, of your postcards. Uh, and then if you really like us, you can, uh, donate and you know we we are very happy to get the donation and have the small base of small donors that we have uh and so you can either become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast or you can make a one-time donation at green and red and just hit that support button it's also on the postcards 